I have a few kind of follow-on thoughts I'd like to share that I didn't have a chance to offer this morning. I thought by starting by just saying a few words about what the purpose for our practice is. Why do we practice? We really, I think we really practice basically to learn about our minds, to see how they get involved in activities that create struggle, create distress for us. And in that process of learning about our minds, seeing how the distress is created, seeing how our minds do what they do, we gain understanding, we gain wisdom, we grow that capacity of wisdom and understanding to... uh, and that that understanding begins to kind of naturally redirect our minds towards well-being, towards truer happiness, towards ease, towards peace. And really it is understanding that we are cultivating, wisdom and understanding that we are cultivating in our practice. The wisdom is what frees us. The understanding is what allows us to, allows the mind to shift its course. It's almost like um, our minds are quite entrenched in the ways that they do things. And uh, changing the course, turning the direction of our minds is like trying to turn a battleship around. So it takes some uh, some wisdom to do that. And initially, the wisdom that we bring to bear on our practice is, uh, I guess we could call it borrowed wisdom, we hear teachings, we hear um, from, perhaps from books or from talks, Dharma discussions, we hear a perspective that sounds interesting for us to explore. And we may or may not really understand that perspective, but perhaps there's some interest in checking it out. So for myself, in this wisdom, this wisdom, you know, sometimes we think of wisdom as being this really big thing, you know, it's like, at least I I had that notion of like, wisdom is like this big uh 
some kind of big knowing of some kind. It sounds so lofty. And um, as I've practiced, I see actually that just even a little bit of wisdom can go a very long way. So for instance, when I first started practicing, I was reading in a book and I got this idea from the book, a little bit of wisdom from the book that suggested rather than acting out your emotions, try looking at them instead. It's like, how's that going to work? I didn't have any idea how that would be helpful. But I was at a state at that point, it was like, well, nothing else has worked. I might as well try that one. And I just began playing with that. Now, when I first heard that, I didn't think of it as like, that's wisdom. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't in my mind that that, well, that is wisdom. But that is a kind of wisdom. This is a, you know, the, the, the perspective that the Buddha offers is often a kind of a, a shift, a turning of how we relate to experience. And this uh, shift of perspective has a great deal of power to it. So initially we might hear something like that and say, well, okay, maybe I'll try that. I'll try to see if that makes any sense to me. Just rather than acting on my emotions, maybe I can hang out with them. For that particular experience, I found very quickly, actually, the power of that wisdom. And I saw pretty quickly the benefit of that. So I I began to understand in my own experience how it was helpful to not act out on emotions, but instead to turn and look at them. Because I could see that when I turned and looked at them, they lasted for a little while and then they stopped. So it began to give me some degree, some measure of um, uh, ease and release around some of the difficulties I was experiencing. So that was for me an example of the wisdom that was borrowed initially turning into wisdom that I understood for myself. So this is this is how it begins for us. Initially we we perhaps borrow wisdom. We hear something and then play with it, try it, experiment with it, and perhaps at some point we actually understand that wisdom for ourselves. Sometimes we can understand that wisdom for ourselves um, for just a little while. I mean, sometimes the, that kind of recognition of understanding something, uh, the, the aha moment of, oh, I get it. Oh, I see why this is helpful. Sometimes that lasts for a few moments. And then an hour later, it's like, well, how did that help again? What was that about? And yet the the way that we... Um, we have learned something. There's been a kind of a, what we c- could I say, that kind of a, an internalization of that wisdom, even if it's not something you can live from 
all the time. And so at some times in practice, we get to borrow wisdom from ourselves. We can recall, yes, that was helpful, or I know that I've experienced, for instance, impermanence. You know, we can borrow that wisdom at times. You know, we may not be living from the place of really deeply knowing impermanence, but we may have had experiences where we have seen, particularly in, for instance, difficult emotions just vanish when we've been willing to hang out with them. And so having had that experience viscerally, we can borrow from that wisdom, reminding ourselves, yes, I know this is impermanent. I know that if I'm willing to just hang out with this, it's helpful. And so the the purpose of our meditation really is to deepen in this wisdom, to shift, move from the place where the wisdom is an idea to where the wisdom is truly deeply understood in our experience. And it is that understanding that frees us. It's that understanding when the wisdom... Um, is is experienced, is seen directly in our present moment experience. That's when the freedom happens. And this whole process unfolds by being willing to look at our minds. Being willing to explore the stress, the suffering, the struggle. The very places we are struggling are the ideal place to learn about our minds and to learn how we're caught, how we're stuck, what it is that's, um, what patterns are operating that are hooking us. And so we explore our minds. I've talked uh, quite a bit about using relaxation in the practice. And um, that is really helpful, and it needs to be balanced with alertness and interest. Relaxation can help us to move into a very natural awareness And yet if we just kind of relax back into natural awareness, we can like just drift off into um, spaciness. And so that relaxation needs to have a balance to it with some interest, some uh, liveliness. So taking an interest in what our minds are doing not just kind of settling back as almost like a blob well what's you know what's happening not not being interested in it but just just you know relaxed so that you can just let yourself be there that's not quite what we're doing there needs to be some investigation of what is happening investigation of the processes of our mind and body that's what we explore here. 
We were exploring the processes of our mind and body. It's like we are um, a naturalist, a scientist investigating a creature. This is what happens when they do this. This is what happens when frustration arises. This is the experience. So the uh, we're not we're not engaged so much in an interfering kind of exploration. It's really much more about being a naturalist, like you know, a naturalist. Um, goes out into nature and tries to observe nature in place. It's not so much like the scientist that digs up the plants and chops them up into pieces and sends them through a DNA machine. It's much more observing the pr- the processes of nature at work in uh, a, a, a non-interfering, non-destructive uh, way. And that very much is a good analogy for what we're doing in our practice. So if you can have some kind of an interest in observing your mind and body, that will support this kind of liveliness of mind. Joseph Goldstein said that one of the best instructions or one of the instructions he got from Munindra, I think it was from Munindra. I might might not be right. Some of you may be able to correct me on that. Where... um, this teacher said to Joseph, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. That's the best tool that we have to understand our minds. And back again to the understanding. As we understand our minds, there's almost this homing mechanism in a way towards well-being. As we observe our minds and understand our minds. I'm really grateful that the mind works this way because our habits of mind tend to be pretty short-sighted. Our habits around, you know, getting what we want and um, being someone who can, you know, be the best whatever, um, to be recognized, to be appreciated, to be approved... Our habits of mind um, tend to be pretty short-sighted. They're going for the quick hit of pleasant. And those habits don't seem to be cognizant of the stress, the dissatisfaction, the struggle that is happening in the very process of trying to get those quick hits of pleasure. And so with mindfulness, as we begin to understand our minds and see our habits and patterns and see how wanting, just a very simple thing we begin to see, we begin to see that wanting doesn't feel very good. You know, we miss that in our habits of wanting. We're so focused on the thing we're going to get that we don't notice we're not, that that we don't feel very good in the process of the wanting. So we miss many moments of 
non-well-being in the service of getting just the smallest little hit of happiness. And then we do it again and again and again. When we bring mindfulness to this process, it begins to reveal the unsatisfactory nature of how we're going about things. And with that seeing, fortunately our, our, our minds and bodies have a kind of a homeostatic um, movement towards well-being. When it's seen and understood, when the mind itself sees and understands the unsatisfactory nature of how we're going about things, the mind begins to correct course. It's not actually something we have to do that much about. The understanding itself begins to reorient the mind. So the interest, the alertness paired with relaxation supports this investigation, supports this. We're learning about how our minds do what they do. We could also think about that we're learning about the natural laws of our mind. In particular, the, uh, the laws of cause and effect in our, how, how our mind functions with respect to cause and effect. And this I'll talk about probably quite a bit over the course of the, the two weeks. The natural law of how when we, well, the Buddha put it, whatever we frequently ponder, that becomes the inclination of our minds. That's cause and effect right there. We wear these grooves of depression or frustration or anger. We frequently ponder, engage in those patterns. That's what happens to us. That's cause and effect. We can choose, when we see that, we can begin to choose rather than engaging in those patterns. This practice encourages a witnessing of those patterns, which begins to um, turn the battleship. So this practice, you know, this... uh, In this practice, for instance, when we see anger arise or difficulty, some kind of afflictive emotion arise, the encouragement is to um, notice that impact. How is that impacting your mind and body? So that's the encouragement. As difficult states of mind arise, get to know them. Be curious about them. Rather than, for instance, in some other forms of practice, we might noticing difficulty like that, say, okay, well, my goal right now is to be with my breath. So let me let that pattern go and come back to the breath. This is a perfectly valid way of practice. I'm not saying that's not a a, a useful and helpful tool in our practice. It's not what I'm um, teaching, not what I'm suggesting we explore here. It can be a very useful tool to do that. And it also um, 
sometimes can make an end run around some of our difficulties in our mind to do that. That we set aside anger over and over again in favor of coming back to the breath. And because of that, we don't get so familiar with how to be present for those difficulties. You know, if we're in a meeting with our boss and anger arises, not so likely that we're going to be able to say, wait a minute, boss, I need to pay attention to my breath. Let me let go of that anger, come to my breath. I can't pay attention to you right now. That's not going to transfer into daily life so well, that kind of practice. So this kind of practice, and this is one of the things I really love so much about this practice, that we learn about our minds in a way that transfers into our daily lives. We learn what it's like to be with emotions, learn how to um, be non-reactive and able to just witness and observe our difficult emotions, which carries more easily into our interactions with other people into our daily lives. So because we are not letting go of those patterns and coming back to settle the mind, the practice that we're doing here is a much, at least from my experience, it's a much slower settle into stability of mind. It's not a mistake. It's not something you're doing wrong if it feels like it's taking longer for the mind to settle down doing this kind of practice. In my experience, it pretty much does take longer. There's not that kind of ballast of, you know, the breath, the breath, the breath to help stabilize the mind. But what we're doing as we're watching the mind is we're learning about our minds. We're learning about those habits, those patterns. Sometimes I say, you know, this retreat is like your mind 101. You are going to go right through your habits, your patterns. The first retreat I did with Saida Utejniya, six week, six and a half week retreat. Um, you know, nobody told me this, that, that it would be a slower settle. And like two weeks in, I was just being whipped around by my um, defilements and I'm, my mind is going, I should be settled by now, which is yet whipping me around more because I had this judgment and agenda that it shouldn't be, this, what was happening shouldn't be happening. And at some point, some little bit of wisdom came in and said, but of course this is the way this practice would unfold. We are looking at dukkha here. We are looking at the way our minds function. Of course, there are still defilements. And when I um, recognized that, and this is partly why I'm telling you this, it really created much more ease around the defilements, around the defilement. And some of you may not be so familiar with that word. It's a, um, a poly term it's translating the Pali term kalesa, which is a whole host of afflictive states of mind that 
um, are basically rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. I'll use that term defilement. Know that this practice asks us to go right through our messiness, right through all of the muddy, yucky stuff. And surprisingly, uh, it can actually be pretty interesting. If, if, if your idea is, how fast is it going to be before I get through all this muddy, junky stuff, there's going to be resistance and a, a sense of um, overwhelm or frustration, perhaps. Can you be a naturalist, you know, getting muddy in the mess? Can you be interested in these habits, patterns of, of your mind? So, um, let's see. I want to leave some time for questions. Why don't, why don't I leave it at that and just see if there's questions at this point based on what you've practiced with today. Or questions about anything I've said. Yeah, Lynn. So is there space within this practice to work with the rain process? Is there space within the practice to work with the rain process? So um, the rain um, acronym, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is um, my understanding is that Michelle McDonald created that um, acronym. It's a set of tools that support working with difficult emotions. And the acronym stands for recognition, acceptance, investigation or interest, and non-identification. And, um, you know, very naturally, those aspects, recognition, acceptance, or allowing, I actually prefer allowing. Um, I mean, the... the um, The first approach, perhaps, would be, I mean, the, the, the basic tool for this practice is allowing. So that, that one's right there. So can we allow whatever's arising to arise? And then in that allowing, we recognize what's happening. And the encouragement is to investigate, be interested in what's happening. And so very much the, um, the practice uses those tools very naturally. And there, it can be helpful at times um, if you find a, a particular state, you know, you're, if you're caught in a state um, where it feels like it's really difficult to simply allow, then we bring in whatever we will, will support us. We can bring in our tools to help us out. So if it helps you to use those as conscious tools, 
by all means. The um, you know there are other ways to approach being with difficulty. Um, so, for instance, um, the investigation we could look at as instead instead of trying to direct the attention to something, asking a question. How is this emotion impacting me? Um, and so that is a form of investigation, but we're not actually directing or trying to find things anywhere, but more opening to you know, asking the question kind of sets up the conditions perhaps for the um, the mind to start looking and being interested in what's happening on its own as opposed to it feeling like us having to do the investigation. But again, you know, the um, when, when there's something overwhelming happening or it feels like we're out of balance, then using, using the tools that we know, absolutely, it's fine to use the tools that we know. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it might be interesting for you to see how those tools can naturally happen as opposed to being something we do. Thank you for the question. Yeah, Marie. So I sat the retreat with Analio earlier this year, and one of the things that I took away from that was about the idea of establishing mindfulness as opposed to directing you know, at objects. You know, yes. Creating an establishment of mindfulness in which awareness can be open and spacious and noticing the changing qualities and the um, impermanent nature and the non-self nature of whatever's arising. But that uses the, the Satipatthana practice to, to establish the mindfulness and then you open to present moment awareness, mm-hmm. balancing that, finding that balance between staying grounded and, and opening the awareness so that you can pay attention to whatever is arising. Do you see that in conflict? Or well, there are different, different, different avenues into the same thing. And so... Um, you know, the, the, one of the things I love so much about our culture and the, um, you know, how much, how much availability of teachings we have in this culture is that there's so many um, approaches, avenues into the practice. And I've definitely seen that no one practice fits all. So... Um, I'm suggesting approaching the practice from a kind of a new direction, a different direction. So explore this, you know, explore this one and see what happens. And what I've seen in my own practice is that when I've gotten various tools, various approaches, um, I begin to learn when the um, these tools kind of an intuitive sense of when the, the various tools or approaches are, are most helpful for this mind. So for instance, 
you know, this mind um, is much more naturally able to settle into concentration with open awareness. Once the mind has become stable, relaxed, able to just be with whatever's happening in the present moment, at that point it becomes fairly easy for the mind to direct the attention and and then begin to um, you know, get a little bit more um, refined with the attention to the breath. Other people find it really hard to begin with the open awareness and find it easier to settle, stabilize with uh, an object. And so, you know, learning the various tools, we, we begin to learn what's, what's the best approach for us. So I'm asking in these two weeks for you to explore, experiment with this perspective, and then in discussions of practice with you, um, I may recognize, you know, in hearing your description, well, it sounds like actually it might help you to stabilize on body sensation for just a bit before opening up. Um, So it's almost like... um, you know, what I'm offering here in the hall, the general instruction is the open awareness practice. And the, you know, the kind of the orientation given in the hall is towards uh, receptive, allowing, uh, non-directed attention. Kind of that's the, the, that's the quality of awareness we are cultivating, we're going for. And in that, um, as that container gets settled, as you said, you know, then the uh, impermanent nature becomes clear, the not-self nature becomes more clear. So, um, you know, different avenues to get to that place. And different minds can get there from different perspectives. So I'm I'm really happy there's not only one technique out there (laughs) because, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of people beat their heads against the wall trying to do you know, some, some of the original teachings that we were exposed to. And um, for me, certainly, it, it's been a huge gift to, to shift to this perspective. But it's not the only practice I do. So um, I do see that they, there are ways to have them integrate. Yeah, thank you. Joshua. The three yogi jobs um, cultivate wise view, and um, I'm actually thinking about tomorrow morning. That's what I'd like to offer in instructions. Or what you know, what is this wise view? You know, how what are practical ways we can think about wise view? Um, so cultivate wisdom, cultivate the perspective that helps us to let go of greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, the, cultivate the perspective that has us recognize, yeah, getting what I want is not necessarily the best way towards happiness. Um, cultivating the perspective of the Four Noble Truths. There's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a path that leads us, and there's the possibility of experiencing the ending of suffering. Understanding karma, the cause and effect nature of our experience, how when we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, it tends to land us in suffering. When we cultivate greed uh, in our minds, it tends to perpetuate greed in our minds. So those kinds of um, things are uh, 
the perspective of wise view. And so we practice as much as possible recognizing that's the perspective we're aiming for. So that's the first yogi job, cultivate wise view. Second yogi job is be mindful. Uh, And I uh, frame this one, learn to recognize awareness. Learn to recognize what it means, what it is to be mindful. What is the experience of awareness? So that um, sense of am I aware? You know, when you ask that question, am I aware? You can, you can often say, yeah, I know I'm aware, but what is the experience of awareness may be more nebulous, may not be as clear. We know that we're aware, but we don't know how we know that we're aware. And so that um, question, reflection, am I aware, slowly over time begins to help us to recognize, every time I know I'm aware, this is what it's like. And we begin to get the visceral experiential sense of what it feels like to be present, to be aware. So that's the second one, be mindful. And the third is to cultivate a continuity of that mindfulness, that gentle, persistent reminding. Be aware, be aware. So those three, cultivate right view, be mindful, and cultivate or encourage the continuity of mindfulness. So those three yogi jobs basically bring two aspects together. Well, they bring three aspects together. They bring wisdom, mindfulness, and effort together. And, uh, you know, the wisdom initially, as I was saying a little earlier, that initially that wisdom is um, often borrowed. It's not experiential wisdom. Um, so recognizing, remembering, yes, if I can just hang out with my difficult emotion, it will go away, you know, so reminding ourselves of something like that. Um, so initially that wisdom is, is more borrowed than felt, but the, um, perspective of that wisdom combined with the mindfulness and the effort to make it more continuous creates the conditions for the continuity of mindfulness, which is the concentration. And it's really the combination of the uh, mindfulness and concentration that's like a knife that cuts into and allows us to clearly see what's happening in the moment. But that cutting into and clearly see what's happening in the moment, that is just a tool. I mean, it's like a knife, right? It's, it's like the, the mindfulness is the knife and the concentration is the sharpening of the knife. And um, that's a tool without the perspective of wisdom, that tool can be used in ways that may not help us as much. And so that's why it's so important to recognize the, the perspective of wise view and bring that in. So cultivating both a wisdom and awareness together. Um, I want to say more about that. So just an example of, just to put this in perspective, you know, an example of what it might mean for somebody to have a lot of 
present moment awareness and focused attention that is not helpful. Think about a thief going into a house to, uh, when somebody is there, you know, they're asleep and, and they want to be as quiet as possible to get what they want from that house. You know, that is present moment awareness and focused attention in the service of greed as opposed to turning to look at what are the processes of body and mind. It's almost like using that tool of mindful attention to get something rather than to understand processes of body and mind. That's another way we could think of what wise view is, that what we're interested in is understanding our bodies and minds, not to get something or have something but to understand. So does that... Okay, thanks. And then there was something over here. Yeah, Dawn. You spoke this morning, I think it was, about um, four attitudes of mind. Greed, aversion, delusion, and ease. Balance, I think I usually say. Mm-hmm. Balance. So, um, I was wondering if you feel it might be skillful in this practice to also notice other wholesome states of mind. Oh, absolutely. A balance is a catch-all. I mean, it's like greed, you know, greed. If we think about, uh, let's call those flavors of attitude. Um, You know, greed may have flavors of, well, let me talk about aversion. I'm really much more familiar with (laughs) with aversion. I can name lots of flavors of aversion right off the top of my head. Not not so familiar with greed. Irritation, annoyance, hatred, rage, anger, frustration, whole range of many different states. And, you know, you, you can, and in fact, in the third foundation of mindfulness, the, the um, Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of mind, he encourages us to kind of recognize presence or absence of greed, aversion, delusion. Um, And so, um, you know, we can um, simply notice that as aversion, and that's enough. But often it is helpful to be a little bit more specific. You know, okay, yes, this is irritation. This is, this is, or this is rage, you know, there are different qualities to the experience. And so with the various flavors of attitude, there are many different qualities that may be present. With balance of mind, there's a lot of things that may be present there. You might notice curiosity. Um, You might notice um, metta or compassion. Um, You might notice um, gratitude or generosity. So how, however it feels to you, I mean, the balance of mind is just the kind of the catch-all. There's a lot of other experiences that may be predominant for you as you notice that. So yes, absolutely. Anything else? Yeah, Peter. Out each one of these into its various parts. 
And sometimes I've used it and I found it really quite helpful. And sometimes it's the only way that it can work for me. And that is to see dosa and loba and moha. Just to see that. Something is happening. It can be either irritation, anger, or whatever. But it's dosa. Right. And just knowing that. Yes, absolutely, and that's what I said. You know, that's what the that's the t- the practice in mindfulness of mind, um, the Buddha's instructions. He says, recognize the presence or absence of. I don't think he actually uses loba there. I think he uses raga, um, raga dosa moha, and um, you know, so to just that um, raga is um, basically desire, uh, lust, uh, uh, dosa is aversion. Hatred, sometimes it's translated in. Uh, moha is delusion. So loba dosa moha, loba also translated as greed. Um, greed, aversion, delusion, their presence or their absence. Kind of basic instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta. And there have been times in my own practice that that's been the most effective thing also. You know, that that it's... Um, it it varies. It varies depending on what's happening in your mind. Again, different minds will have different experiences. At times, um, it's very helpful to get specific about this is irritation, this is annoyance, this is frustration, this is uh, metta, this is balance, this is ease, this is peace, to get more uh, refined. And at other times, it's helpful to just recognize aversion is present. Aversion is absent. Greed is present. Greed is absent. The absence of, and it's interesting there. I mean, the 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 Sati the, the Satipatthana Sutta. What I'm I'm describing there is the third foundation of mindfulness. Um, the first half of that talks about noticing the presence or absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. The uh, fourth flavor that I mention there is called out in the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. And sometimes that's what's experienced. It's not so much that it feels like some beautiful, expansive state of balance and ease and peace, but it feels like no aversion. Aversion is not present right now. And and that uh, can also be really helpful to recognize the absence of those states is a doorway into recognizing that balance also, that balance of mind also. So thank you for saying that. Marco. Well, the, I think I'll say it just a little different. Um, um, the object and the mind are actually both processes. Um, and in both cases, whether we're... I mean, the, the one important piece here is that um, at times in our practice, the object the what of our experience, which is also a process. I mean, like, you know, sensation, body sensation of pressure or pulsing or vibration or tingling or heat or coolness or hardness or softness. That's also a continually changing experience. That's a process that's, that's in play. Sometimes, sometimes 
the mind is naturally recognizing the object. And sometimes it's more able to notice how we are observing it. And um, when I began to get familiar with what it actually meant to be able to pay attention to the mind, I began doing that. I began, uh, and it it gave me a headache, actually. (laughs) So when I went and reported this to uh, to Saito Utejani, he says, well, don't try to do it. He says this a lot, actually. One of the things, one of the... uh, um, my favorite things he says is, nothing I say is anything you're supposed to do. <laughs> you know, it, it basically, he says, just let this, this is information. What I'm giving you is information. Just let it go into the back of your mind and then notice what your mind is doing. Just notice. And so um, we can uh, begin to recognize when the mind is kind of more attuned to the object. And at times it will come and and notice the mind more naturally. And when we begin to get... Um, there are times when it can be helpful to do something, and the checking of the attitude is one of those things that begins to point us to knowing what are the processes of mind that are working. But we don't have to do that all the time. And we don't have to try to do this like turn back and look at the mind. Just so so um, the encouragement is to get out of the way as long as you're present. So you're sitting, you're noticing maybe body sensation, for example, and then the sound of the crow, and automatically the attention is already on the sound of the crow. It's like you didn't do that. You didn't. You didn't decide to do that. Well, there, yeah, that hearing is happening. You kind of notice that's the following the awareness. Notice that the attention has gone there, and then what's next? I mean, that sound comes, it goes. The next moment arises. What's what's obvious in the next moment? So we don't have to like hold on to an object in order to observe it. You know, if, if, that, if that's happening, I mean, sometimes that happens. You know, if you've done, like, it sounds like you're talking about the noting. Well, if you're, if enjoying is happening, yeah. notice enjoyment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really simple. <laughs> it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. <laughs> yeah, so there's the sound. If enjoyment is arising, oh, enjoying is happening. Okay, enjoying, enjoying. And then the enjoying will fade, and then something else will happen. Yeah. That's the, it's, again, it's following the awareness. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah, Lynn. Just following up what you were asking about it, it seems like it's very 
very difficult to change habit patterns. I mean, obviously, that's a lot of what we're doing. And so if you have the habit of noting, yes. Yes. So here, this is this is great because I had this on my list of things to <laughs> to talk about. So I thought I'd see it if people stumbled into some of these. <laughs> so yes, doing this practice, one of the things we begin to see is essentially that we've cultivated habits of practice, right? So we've cultivated habits of noting or perhaps habits of turning our attention to the body or habits of paying attention to the breathing or whatever, you know, whatever um, tool that you have used a lot, you know, that's been your skillful means. It's been what you have frequently pondered in meditation has become the inclination of your mind. Um, So, there's two approaches here. And I like to offer both because one of them is the one that Steve Armstrong said, this is the way I go when I'm noticing my practice habits. But for me, that one didn't work so well and I ended up with another approach. So um, so for Steve, he found that often when he was engaged in practice habits, there was a conscious doing involved. You know, that... Uh, his mind had picked up on the noting practice and he was doing the noting or, you know, whatever. He was, he was engaged with his practice habit. So it's kind of like the practice habit had begun and he'd kind of jumped on that train and had, you know, engaged with it. So if that's the kind of thing that's happening, if there's conscious engagement with the practice, the, 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 the habit of practice, then it may be helpful to see if you can let go of doing, come back to relaxation, and then recognize that there's the natural awareness, that we don't have to do anything to be aware. So that's one approach. For myself, my own practice habit was so well established that when I relaxed and didn't do anything, my practice habit began, which was attention in the body. So when I relaxed and... um, Uh, didn't direct the attention, the attention went to the body, kind of the vibratory energy of the body. I would spend a lot of time hanging out in the vibratory energy of the body. And uh, Sayadaw Utejniya, when I reported this to him, said, well, that's a habit, and you need to consciously uh, find a way to begin to observe the mind. So I used the tool of the attitude there. So I didn't try to stop the habit. I noticed how the mind was with that habit. So when I noticed that the mind was engaged in the practice habit, so that there, right there, is a noticing. You know, without this uh, kind of new approach, you might not ever have recognized, oh, this is actually the mind doing something. You know, the, mi- the mind is, is engaged in this habit. It would have just been, well, this is what we're supposed to do when we're meditating. But now you're seeing it as a process. This is a process that the mind is engaged with. So I would start my meditation and relax and allow that natural inclination of being in the body to happen. And at some point I would recognize, okay, this is the mind doing its habitual thing. What's my relationship to this? 
And what I began to see is actually the mind was pretty happy. The mind was at ease. So I hadn't noticed that, that part. That part had not been so clear to me. I'd been just in the body vibration. What's my relationship with this? Ease, ease, peace, happiness. It opened the doorway then to see the mind. So that's another approach, is to um, allow the practice habit to happen and then just see your relationship to that. Another way of putting this is um, from Sayadaw Utejaniya's teacher, one of my uh, close friends and colleagues got to visit uh, Shwe Umin Sayadaw um, before he died. And Shwe Umin Sayadaw was also encouraging this very receptive, non-interfering practice. And um, my friend said, Sayadaw, when I sit down and meditate, the mind naturally goes to the breath and starts to note. And Sayadaw's response was, just notice the mind that does that. So not you don't have to stop it, but recognize, oh, noting is happening. That's, that's recognizing the process that's at work in the mind in that moment. Uh, let's see. Um, we should probably stop, actually. So um, let's just allow the words to settle for a couple of minutes. And noticing how are you now, this interaction, this exchange will have had an impact on you. It doesn't have to be a problem. It's just the causes and conditions unfolding. So perhaps there's a little bit more energy in your body. Whatever it is for you, however this Time has impacted you. Open to that. Be with that. Notice it. It is what it is. It is already happening. 